You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Holy Spirit, just as you did at Jesus' baptism and just as you did in the lives of all the saints who have gone before us, we beg you, magnify Jesus today. Amen. You may be seated. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And as we hear today's passage uh, from Mark, we need to remember that we've actually entered into the fray. See, Jesus has been engaged over the last chapter and a half, the way Mark has set it up, in a battle with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. And so if we were to just look at chapters seven or 11 and 12, we'd see this barrage, this, this way of, of this going back and forth. After his entry into Jerusalem, so it's the final week of his life before going to the cross, he confronts the temple money changers. And then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they challenge his authority. And then Jesus tells a parable that confronts the Pharisees' inability to recognize the Son of God. And then he debates those leaders about taxes in this political week. He argues with the Sadducees about the theology of the resurrection. And now, here in our passage, Mark sets it up that everything is is coming to a head. Jesus is finally digging up the roots underneath the soil of all this back and forth. See, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees, and part of the problem with what passes for Christianity today, is deadly, unbiblical, and anti-Christ legalism. We all know legalists, and honestly, if God would open up the recesses of our hearts, we'd all discover that we're all recovering legalists. Legalists are the ones who strain every last drop out of the rules, the right and the wrong, those who insist that everyone must do the same. Legalism uses what at many times feels like abusive phrases, like, that's not a very Christian thing to do, or would Jesus approve of that behavior? Legalism furthermore polarizes. Legalism only allows for two kinds of people, people who keep the laws and people who don't. And these two communities, the law keepers and the law breakers, are not only merely divided, they're at odds, they are at enmity. Why? Because legalism inherently oppresses. It judges in a way that presses down and crushes, eliciting sometimes an equal and opposite reaction. Christian legalism, now there's an oxymoron. Let's talk about that for a second. What does Christian legalism look like? Sometimes it looks like Westboro Baptist legalism. You know, that kind that stands on street corners and pride rallies and abortion clinics with hateful signs condemning all the sinful practices of the world. But actually, that's really the obvious stuff. The not-so-obvious stuff is the kind of Christianity that downshifts from proclaiming the gospel to settling for uh, living according to the principles of Christ. It settles for Jesus as a great moral teacher or a preeminent social ethicist. You want to be a Christian? Well, 
The answer is live like Jesus, they say. Make Christ the master of your life. The reason that this kind of legalism isn't so obvious is that these are echoes of true Christian teaching, divorced from its essence. They demand the fruit of the gospel apart from the root of the gospel. Why is this ultimately Christless legalism? And why is the religion of the scribes and Pharisees ultimately Christless legalism? Now here's the irony. It's not because these groups have too high a view of the law of God. It's that they have too low a view of God's law. Reform theologian J. Gresham Machen, he hit the nail on the head when he said this, making Christ master in this life or putting into practice the principles of Christ by one's own efforts. These are merely new ways of earning salvation by one's own obedience to God's commands. And they're undertaken because of a lax view, because of a lax view of what the commandments are. So it always is. A low view of the law brings legalism in religion. And a high view of law makes a man a seeker after grace. Let me illustrate this. When my boys were younger, they couldn't shoot, shoot hoops on a 10-foot rim. They simply weren't strong enough to throw a basketball 10 feet into the air. So what did I do? I lowered the rim. I lowered it to 7 feet. And suddenly, a basket on that very same rim actually was attainable. At 7 feet, my boys were actually good basketball players. And if there would come a time where one of my boys would get a little cocky about their basketball skills, all I would have to do, and I never really did this, would be to say, oh, so you think you're a great basketball player, do you? In your little imaginary world of seven-foot rims? Well, let me show you what real basketball is like. And I'd raise that rim to ten feet. Take the shot now, young man. Legalism is bringing the rim of God's law down to a height where we know we can actually make the shot. Legalism is saying, I'm a flawless basketball player while shooting on the short rim and still calling that basketball. Let's stay with the metaphor just a little bit longer. One of the dangers of lowering the rim and calling it basketball is that if you say it enough, you and others begin to think that basketball means a seven-foot rim. But in truth, you have lied. Basketball is not true basketball without a 10-foot rim. No matter how much you move that rim down and no matter how much you call that sport basketball, so it is with legalism. Legalism likes to use the Bible's word righteousness, but legalism lowers the standard of righteousness and has fooled itself into thinking that seven-foot righteousness is actual righteousness. And then the legalist begins to think, and these are not only foolish thoughts, but deadly thoughts. I'm actually doing it. I'm a flawless basketball player. I can make the shot every time. I am actually righteous. See, Machen was right. A low view of the law brings legalism, and a high view of the law makes a man a seeker after grace. If we're trying to hear clearly what Jesus is doing to his listeners with the great commandment in Mark 12, there's almost no better way of explaining it than that. This is ultimately why Jesus tells the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God, because he's stepped forward enough 
to the edge of that cliff to see over. And he's coming closer to the totalizing demands of the all. All your heart. All your understanding. All your strength. That's the height of the rim, Jesus says. It's all the way up there. And this is really interesting, okay? Because do you know what all means in the original Greek of the Bible? It's an insight that I, as a biblical exegete, can't wait to share with you. It means, wait for it, all. It means all, right? Because each one of us instinctively runs as far as we can from the totalizing all of the law of God. We sometimes don't recognize how often Jesus is going there in his teaching. Exhibit A, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, Jesus said, You've heard it said, you shall not murder. And your response is, well, thanks be to God, I haven't killed anybody. But I say to you, that's seven-foot righteousness. Anybody can dunk on that righteousness. You've got it wrong. I demand ten-foot righteousness. So if you have even a hateful, insulting thought or word against someone else, you're a murderer, and you are liable to the judgment of hell. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And your response is, well, thank God I haven't slept with anybody's spouse, anyone but my spouse. Well, that's seven-foot righteousness, Jesus says. I say to you, you let your eyes linger for too long on those yoga pants, wondering what's underneath them. Or if you find yourself daydreaming or fantasizing about what a better life you've had if you had that husband or that man, that's what I call adultery. Ten-foot rim. Jesus says. But even if we're not terribly religious, even if we don't read our Bibles, or even if we don't spend a lot of time soaking in biblical teaching, we can't get away from the totalizing nature of the law of God. We can't even get away from that 10-foot rim, hard as we try to pretend that it's seven feet, because it's everywhere. In September, just last month, the New York Times issued this article by Tim Wu entitled, in praise of mediocrity. This is what Wu says. I'm a little surprised by how many people tell me that they have no hobbies. It may seem like a small thing, but at the risk of sounding grandiose, I see it as a sign of a civilization in decline. The idea of leisure, after all, is a hard-won achievement. It presupposes that we have overcome the exigencies of brute survival. Yet here in the United States, the wealthiest country in history, we seem to have forgotten the importance of doing things solely because we enjoy them. Yes, I know we're all so very busy between work and family and social obligations. Where are we supposed to find the time? But there's a deeper reason, I come to think, that so many people don't have hobbies. We're afraid of being bad at them. Or rather, we're intimidated by the expectation that we must actually be skilled at what we do in our free time. Our hobbies, if that's even a word for them anymore, have become too serious, too demanding, too much an occasion to become anxious about whether you are really the person that you claim to be. If you're a jogger, it's no longer enough to cruise around the block. You're training for a marathon. If you're a painter, you're no longer passing a pleasant afternoon, just you and your watercolors and your water lilies. You're trying to land a gallery show or at least garner a respectable social media following. When your identity is linked to your hobby, you're a yogi, you're a surfer, you're a rock climber, you better be good at it or else who are you, Wu says. Lost here is the gentle pursuit 
of a modest competence. The doing of something just because you enjoy it, not because you're good at it. Hobbies, let me remind you, are supposed to be something different from work. But alien values like the pursuit of excellence have crept into and corrupted what was once the realm of leisure, leaving little room for the true amateur. The population of our country now seems divided between semi-pro hobbyists and those who retreat into the passive, screeny leisure that is the signature of our technological moment. In a way that we rarely appreciate, the demands of excellence are at war with what we call freedom. For to permit yourself to do only that which you're good at is to be trapped in a cage whose bars are not steel, but self-judgment, especially when it comes to physical pursuits, but also with many other endeavors. Most of us will be truly excellent at only whatever we started doing in our teens. What if you decide in your 40s that you want to learn to surf? What if you decide in your 60s that you want to learn to speak Italian? The expectation of excellence can be stultifying. So Wu's purpose in this article was to motivate us again to enjoy the freedom of mediocrity. But in the midst of that, don't you hear him identifying and smack dab in the middle of secular culture precisely what Jesus is actually talking about right here? The ten-foot rim. It stands over us, telling us the real truth. Something about our performative age doesn't allow us to have seven-foot hobbies anymore because ten-foot perfection is always right in front of our face, critiquing us and telling us the brutal truth. It's in the very nature of the law of God to be brutally truthful, to tell us not what we'd like to hear, but what actually is. We'd like to hear that the rim is seven feet, but that's not basketball. We'd like to hear that if we just skim God's commandments and do a pretty good job and weigh those good deeds against the bad deeds that we didn't do, that God will reward us with eternal life. But that's not righteousness. It's damnable. Again, the law is brutally truthful. It's the biggest killjoy it's the ultimate Debbie Downer. I heard this past week that one of the Ginolette boys, Franklin, came up with the most creative Halloween costume ever. Evidently, he fashioned something that looked like a big, red, round, cellular blob. And as he traipsed from house to house in Southside, people might ask him, now what are you? And he would respond, I'm diabetes. And I was thinking to myself, that's actually the law. Halloween night wants to say, hey kids, go ahead and bury yourselves in mounds and mounds of candy. You're going to live forever in eternal sugary bliss. And a cute little red blob comes along and says, we're all going to die of kidney failure. All right? The law is brutally truthful. It cuts through our fantasies of supposed righteousness and says, this is what actual righteousness actually looks like. Maybe we don't realize how totalizing this pressure really is. Maybe you're an older kid or a preteen or a teenager in a home with several siblings, or maybe you grew up like this. Maybe you have a reputation in your family of being the bad kid, the one who never gets your act together, the one who keeps on doing the wrong thing. Maybe to make matters worse, your really good sister or brother is the one your parents are always comparing you to. 
Or maybe your parents aren't making the comparison, but it feels like they are. Or maybe you just can't help but make the comparison yourself. What you're feeling deep down in the moment of shame, bitterness, resentment, embarrassment, when the comparison is made, what you're feeling when you don't measure up, what is that statement being proclaimed to your heart? You're actually feeling the totalizing pressure and power of the law. You're feeling the all. And the all only does one thing. It crushes. You know, if the rim is only seven feet, I only need a little help, a little training, a little boost, a little pick-me-up, a little life coaching. I just need to hone and chisel the best version of me. But once the rim is properly recognized at 10 feet, the real rim, real righteousness, 10 times out of 10, you and I miss that shot. We're too weak. Our moral constitutions simply don't have the musculature to get the ball all the way up there. And if you're going to miss the shot 10 times out of 10, you don't need more practice. You don't need more coaching. You don't need to hone your best self. You need a substitute. You need someone who can stand in and make the shot. You don't need to continue going around faking and bragging about seven-foot righteousness and or insisting that others abide by that same bankrupt code. You need someone who can stand in your place and be the ten-foot righteousness that you can never be. You need someone who can truly be the all of love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And folks, the big surprising shocker is that the one sent by the Father to remind every last one of us legalists just how high that rim is, the one our passage declares to us the brutal truth, the totalizing all, is the very one who would volunteer, he would volunteer to be our substitute. Jesus loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind, and with all his strength. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the totalizing all. And today in his mercy, he says, take it, it's yours. But I ask for something in exchange. Give me your unrighteousness. Give me your seven foot, try hard, no good, damnable fears and failings. And our blessed Lord carries up that burden to the cross to suffer its total death and annihilation to such a degree that he can cry from the cross, it is finished. To such a degree that the Apostle Paul can declare the totalizing word, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Martin Luther said, the law says, do this. And it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. Therefore, he is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. So today again, let the law be brutally honest with you. And when you do, know that you're not far from the kingdom of God. But then believe upon Jesus Christ and know without a shadow of a doubt that you are already there.
Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.